0: Welcome to Top in Tech, a Global Council podcast. I'm Colin Darcy, I'm your regular host and a senior practice director at Global Council. So today it is the latest in our series of discussions with the leading thinkers in the tech sector. And I'm delighted to be joined by Leo Ringer. Leo is a founding partner of Form Ventures, which is an early stage VC focused specifically on markets that are shaped by public policy and regulation. Leo and his colleagues have made a splash in London's VC circles. Most recently, Form Ventures contributed to Atomico's State of the European Tech Report. Leo, before Form Ventures, has a long history in public policy. First, he worked at the UK Business Association, the CBI. He was then an advisor to Vince Cable when he was business secretary. And then, most notably, he was a colleague with me at Global Council working on UK public policy. So Leo, thanks very much for joining us today. There's two things that I'd like to really explore as we go through the conversation. The first is the report that I've already referred to. In the findings of the report, you contributed particularly to the policy environment. Um, I'd like to just draw out a little bit about your thoughts about what is and what isn't important, and relatively speaking, both within the report, but also the broader policy environment for VCs and startups in the UK but also in other markets, both in Europe and elsewhere. Secondly, I'd like to talk about the specific experience that you have had in founding a VC fund in the UK and how you feel the policy environment we have here has contributed either in a positive and a negative sense. And to get that real personal experience, because very few people we would have on the podcast have that direct experience of starting something totally new. So why don't we start with the, the report? Um, you the state of the European tech report that Atomico do every year, it's become a bit of a landmark landmark report for the tech sector and charting where we are, and form ventures contributed uh, this year. When I was looking through the report last night, one thing just wasn't quite clear to me. You have this this visual that shows what different countries have done according to different types of measures, so some of them are around, say, visa reform or others around administrative easing for startups or issues related to ipo reform and so on and so forth to make things easier essentially for vcs and startups but there didn't appear to be a direct correlation between the countries that had taken those measures and where vc capital had been invested so to take an example the uk seemed to have fewer or indeed the same number of measures as say germany or france but had roughly double or treble The VC investment than those two countries. So how do we interpret this? Is our conclusion that actually, while these things might be important, other factors are more important. So I would just guess that the UK having the City of London here is quite an important contributory factor. So can you just talk us through that a little bit about the results, but also just how you see that going? Yeah, sure. And I think the first thing to say is that the the data set itself is
1: actually a work in progress. So we, as you say, we partnered with Atomico uh, for the first round of research. We built the data set, which sits behind the report. So if anyone's interested, they can click through from the report website and find that underlying data set. But the real message, I think, from both Form and Atomico is please help us, please contribute. There's a, there's a form there where people can check, look look at a particular country, look at a particular set of policy issues. Maybe it's around stock options and help us make sure that it's completely uh watertight and, and fully populated because we want to make sure this is a sort of open source project to get everyone's wisdom on uh, the state of public policy for startups and VCs in their country. So that's that's the first message I'd always put out when when talking about it. And and we want to make it better, more detailed, deeper. But your question is a really, really good one because now we've built it, now it's out there, we start to get into the interesting questions of what does it tell us. And then almost more importantly, how do we use it and how might public policymakers use it. So I think the first thing to say to your question about why isn't there such a strong correlation between where the policy seems to be um, in place and the size of the VC ecosystem, whether that's by a number of funds or capital invested, I think is because obviously these public policy levers are only a part of the ecosystem, uh, only part of what makes a country like the UK, for example, one of the more dominant ecosystems in Europe. A lot of it's to do with legacy industries like financial services. It's to do with simply the size of the population and the economy. And I don't think we're claiming that public policy reform can sort of overcome some of those really structural barriers to the size of a a venture ecosystem. I think what we're saying is that these are really important enablers that perhaps if you're a country that has a less dominant venture sort of ecosystem and a a smaller market perhaps, that there are things you can pull to to shift the dial and make your country more attractive um, and easier for startups to do business. I think the second thing is probably to do with timing and a bit of a lag effect. I, you know, it's my view that countries like the UK, to a degree, are maybe resting on their laurels. We've enjoyed a really strong ecosystem in the UK. Yes, the public policy environment has been supportive, but we haven't necessarily had to work that hard to earn that. It's, it's partly just a function of the way the, the European economies have evolved. And we see really ambitious states, like for example in the Baltics, taking this really seriously and whether it's, say, I think Latvia is a good example on, on stock options reform really gone from essentially the bottom of the pile to, to, to right to the top. And, and you see that level of ambition. And I think that's a clear signal to entrepreneurs and to, and to VCs that this is, this is a place to do business. So I think we'll see that lag effect begin to shift as over the next five to 10 years, the countries that only really in the last four or five years have started to look at this systematically and made changes. We'll see that flow we'll through. And then the final point I'd say is that what we've captured here is what we like to call horizontal policies, sort of enabling policies around things like access to finance the government funding or tax regimes, access to talent, that might be visas. Um, But the other half, if you like, of public policy as it affects startups and something we think about quite a lot at Form is what we call vertical policies. That might be diving into an area like fintech or an area like um, cellular agriculture and saying, what are the sector-specific reforms that need to happen to unlock and unleash innovation in that sector? And and so something we want to build into and do next is to say, well, could you look at that on a per-country basis and say, you know, okay, the uk's had an ambitious approach to fintech since 2010 but maybe actually that's beginning to retrench. are other countries taking up the mantle and really pushing hard on particular sectors where they want to dominate and once you combine that vertical picture with the horizontal picture, I think you get a um a more comprehensive view and one that you can start to sort of use to disentangle these questions about you know what works what matters and and how countries can actually. Um, shift the dial
0: for their ecosystem, just on that point, I recall being at the web summit in Lisbon in November, and everywhere you moved, there was someone from crypto or blockchain uh, type sectors, and as I understand it, Portugal has quite a conducive tax environment for crypto, so perhaps that's one example of the type of thing you're just you're suggesting here, although given what's happened with FTX, perhaps that was <laughs> not the right bet to make, but thinking about, say, Is that the way that you think countries should think about their incentives? Because you could imagine a situation with, say, the UK. Let's say we get a new government in 2024. What you might think about, you know, we're not going to be able to compete blow by blow with China and the US. So it's almost a choice, isn't there, between where you focus the energy and the public policy levers. So with the UK and the success of the city, but also the fintech sector, you could make quite a coherent argument that actually where we should focus moving forward would be in encouraging the fintech payments sector even further. In Germany, I don't know what that would be. Something maybe related to more you know, industrial use cases around manufacturing and uh, so on and so forth. But is that the way that we should think about this? More pick and choosing where to divert our efforts rather than cross-cutting uh, proposals? I think it's a case of,
1: of, of just the first point is just recognizing as a policymaker that the kind of innovation you see both begin and scale over time is partly a function of, of what you put in place from a regulatory perspective. So it might not be that you need to pick, but if you see the early signals in a market uh, or a sector that, that there's innovation going on, that there's be- the beginnings of a critical mass, like I think we have here in the UK on cellular agriculture and specifically sort of cultivated meat, so it's sort of lab grown meat. You have a bunch of companies that have raised capital from global leaders. They're very early, but there's a signals there that the UK could really become a centre for this. And you've seen the government to a degree respond with the genetic tech bill that's going through Parliament at the moment. So it's not, uh, which one comes first? It's a bit of a chicken and an egg, but I think it's, it's as much about public policymakers seeing on the ground what's beginning to get traction and then saying, is this a sector where we can enable that growth and kind of unlock it? as opposed to regulation standing in their way. So you mentioned Germany, and I think one of the areas where Germany has seen interesting innovation at the very early stages in digital health, because they have the DIGA reimbursement system, which essentially provides, it's still early days for that. And, and we see a lot of startups pitching saying, we're going to get reimbursed in Germany. They have a system, and, and obviously there's a, lot, a long way to go before you, you get there. But at least it's, it, it's public policymakers signaling that they have an intention to take digital health seriously from a kind of public health systems perspective, and I think that's the kind of example where once you put a bit of a marker down, it doesn't need to be much, but a bit of a marker I think and a bit of engagement can can kind of go a long way to giving startups and investors the confidence. Because one of the things that we find ourselves doing as investors is not just taking our own view of a startup, but for example, companies we've invested in that may be raising further, bigger rounds of funding, which we wouldn't necessarily be involved in from a lead perspective is helping those lead investors understand the regulatory environment around that business and maybe even give them a bit of comfort about that because it's not necessarily their you know, their, their strength. And so even for us, being able to point to a supportive government initiative in a particular country and say, well, we, we, we think that public policymakers get this here. We don't think that if you back this company, they're going to collide with immovable barriers further down the road because there's enough there. So this is sort of a symbiotic relationship. And I just think it's about, if anything, the, the, probably the key action for policymakers is just to really spend time understanding what's being funded at a, at, a, you know, at that seed stage so that they can take a view on where they might want to, as you say, place those sort of, you know, there's only a certain number of chips, right? There's only a certain amount of legislative time or policy effort, but you can see signals,
0: I think, if you spend a bit of time uh, with the ecosystem. And on that then, so if I look at the the document that you produced with, Atomico, and the, as you say that you're constantly trying to improve and hopefully some listeners will, will help in that effort but if i look at that there are some things that everyone seems to have more or less done so i'm looking here startup financing seems to be only poland but perhaps poland have done but at least as we we understand it we had date. a submission from a,
1: a very unhappy
0: uh <laughs> polish person who, who wanted to tell us about a
1: scheme in fact the day we launched which is which is great because that's exactly what we wanted we wanted to put this out there and get that conversation going but
0: but yeah so, so, so. okay, so Poland a <laughs> completed the set. so startup financing is looks pretty pretty well covered say uh, immigration and visa reform again looks pretty well covered uh, and a few other areas, so you know startup investment tax incentives and so on and so forth there's other things that you, there isn't much happening, so startup procurement uh, incentives for example, or say reforms around public capital markets reform or um around IPOs, perhaps that's perhaps that's related to a lot of these powers being at EU level, I don't know. But anyway, some of these things are happening a lot and some of these things aren't happening. Does that, going back to your point about signals, does that suggest that some of those signals are more important than others or is it that just what countries have tended to do will be that sort of low-hanging fruit and some of the other stuff is just a bit harder? It's a really interesting question and I've got a few hypotheses but
1: I, I don't think I I definitely know the answer. So one hypothesis is that I think some of these issues have become almost uh, in vogue at different points in time. So if you you take the issue of stock options, Index Ventures and another venture fund did a lot of work to put that on the radar and to say with their not optional campaign. This is a key enabling issue for talent in startups. And if you don't have a supportive stock options regime, it's really hard for early stage companies to compensate their employees with equity rather than cash. And that is a real hindrance to attracting the very best global talent because this is a global marketplace for talent we're in in Europe, not just a European one. And so stock options got that focus, policymakers couldn't avoid it. And you've seen a very direct response there from countries that have have improved their regimes. And I think things like public funding through state investment banks have similarly in the past, there's been a bit of um, almost rivalry to say, well, our are state funding vehicles more impressive than yours or everyone talks about the KFW in Germany and everyone talks about the BBB or and then at the European-level EIF. I think there are other areas like, for example, um, maybe on the general administrative easing side on, say, listing rules where partly it's a European-level um, competence, but also I think these are just issues where the tech ecosystem, the startup community, the venture community haven't yet coalesced around them and pointed at them as being things... That are really important to change and so maybe that reflects i think implicitly rather than explicitly an order of an, a feeling of priority that the community has raised issues that feel most important to it first and policymakers have responded and we're kind of almost going to work our way down that list but to, to kind of step back from that long list in the database i think the the two most important things that if you speak to any early stage company and early, early stage you know investor are are um, capital and talent, and, and that's you know not surprising, and most companies would say that, but I think the the big dial shifting things are when you can really unlock extra additional capital or really make it easier for globally competitive talent to, to come and work and, and reside in, in your country and and actually, you could probably categorize more some of the, the issues we've got there into into sort of capital talent and then maybe other, um, and that might tell you
0: that, that they're the two kind of core strands of, of a lot of this. So we've talked about, Leo, the positive side of things. And I think you all remember in the not too distant past as a public policy uh, consultant that we spend most of our time at Global Council talking about the negative side of the ledger. So thinking about startup environments, and the environment for encouraging uh, VC funds and uh, VC investment in different countries, a lot of issues come up around, particularly around exit options, uh, startups. So I'm thinking here in the UK, the National Security Investment Act, which to those who are less familiar to it on the line, it introduces greater scrutiny from the government uh, around foreign acquisitions of British companies. And then we also have coming up, I believe the latest date now is uh, for next month, for the new competition bill to come through, which is going to bring in the digital markets unit. Um, as part of that, we expect to see greater scrutiny around big tech at- Um, big tech acquisitions of startups. So if we take that from a startup perspective, potentially you're going to see your options for being sold to a foreign company per se being more limited or at least more scrutinized, which may disincentivize people from doing it. And then on the competition side, your exit option towards a big US normally tech company, again, being sort of limited. So I'd be interested just what, what, what thoughts do you have around that? I mean, all this positive side of things, can those negative quickly blow those out of the water? You're right that this is
1: not a one-way street for for, for policy. So in general, on that database, most things have got better over time in most countries. Countries have realised that they are um, able to to make reforms that that, that improve the status quo. But as you know, as well as anyone, policymaking can be fickle and other things... um, blow in the opposite direction so if you take the example and there's, there's a lot in your question to unpack so i'll kind of try and work try and work through it but the first one around the national security screening regime this is a, this is a trend we've seen politically globally or certainly in the west in terms of wanting more control of what happens through MA in in your country and that's um you know, in, in some senses completely understandable but it does come at odds with other notions around free and unfettered markets and You know the capital markets in general, whether public or private. So there's a tension there, and I think the first thing I'd say is the tech community probably hasn't been very good in the past at understanding that policymakers firstly have these other um, incentives and these other drivers beyond just promoting the good of the tech community, and and secondly that they have the right to essentially do what they want within their elected mandate. So it's neither um, uh, necessarily short sighted or unwarranted that that these things happen. Instead, I think it's what's the substance. Of the outcome, how can that be? How how can the tech community engage in that to shape it in a way that is, if it's going to be, perhaps slightly detrimental, that it's as, as 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 least detrimental as possible, as opposed to being outwardly hostile and and pushing policymakers away. And I think the whole conversation we could have about the nature of that interface between the tech community and public policymakers, which generally speaking, when it's engaged and constructive, is is good, and when it's hostile, I think is where things where things break down. Um, I do have a concern that through a combination of things like the National Security Bill um, and potentially you know, the DMU and ex-ante regulation of, of tech mergers or big tech mergers, that the what I call the startup liquidity flywheel does start to suffer. And, and what do I mean by that? I mean that the venture ecosystem depends in part on successful companies coming through. Exiting and the proceeds of those exits, yes, going back to venture funds and back to LPs to, to create more investment in funds, but going back to the founders, the, the early team, who then become angel investors, they then become um they start new companies. And and what you've seen in in the West Coast of the US is is, is it's, a, it's a loop, not a not a not a sort of conveyor belt. And a lot of that liquidity, and a lot of that talent and expertise come back in at the start of the ecosystem and it goes round. And so one of the things that I'm not sure has been priced into the policy making around both national security screening and um, and the DMU is, is the implication for that liquidity flywheel and that sort of startup ecosystem. And that's partly because the policymakers are trying to achieve something else in both of those cases, national security concerns or concerns around competition and big tech dominance. But it doesn't mean you can't step back and factor in, you know, the, the health of the startup ecosystem. One of the outcomes, I think, is that you end up with this, and I've written about this before, this asymmetry between the exit options that founders then have if you think about the UK, we're still relatively early in our venture journey. We, we have some unicorns. We have fewer than we did maybe a year ago, but we have some unicorns. Um, not many of them have exited. Some have in, in the public markets most recently. And, and what you do if you start to tighten up the routes to exit by acquisition, for example, getting acquired by a foreign buyer or by big tech, is you, I think sort of inadvertently in my mind, you, you tilt um, the option towards having to list or having to IPO because you you sort of shut down some of those exit options. And it seems, uh, it's not clear to me why public policymaking should sort of create that asymmetry. I think public policy in general should be neutral to the way that companies decide to to find liquidity, particularly when the IPO window is only open periodically. And we've seen the challenges actually of listing in London for some of the companies that have done it recently. So I think there is something in there that probably needs to, again, it's stepping back and it's looking at the waterfront of of sort of m and related reform and saying, where does this wash out through the lens of startups? And I'll be happy with how it's landing. And I'm just not sure that that conversation's had yet, but you know, the senior team at the DMU, I think do understand this, you know, they, they do engage. And hopefully as they, as you said, it's, it's sort of not long now that they'll begin to move out of that shadow sort of phase and into operation that, um, that they really embed that startup mindset within um, the way that they actually operationalize
0: what they do going forward. And just as a higher level question that you've you've touched on there, but I'd just like to get your thoughts a bit, and perhaps we can take take off your VC hat and um, the startup hat for now, and just think as a sort of from your previous experience as a public policymaker to the business secretary at the time. So, had Vince Cable had we had the NSIA at the time, Vince Cable would have been the Secretary of State responsible for this. So you were very much in that that department, very much in that world. Do you think? that the current business secretary, say Grant Shapps, and his successors, should he care really about the nationality of tech companies? We've had this slightly pained debate in the UK since Google, now Alphabet, acquired DeepMind. And there's a certain anguish in that discussion that, not, not, not visceral, but it sort of recurs every now and again, and it's sort of talked about a lot in the background. I mean, do you think actually it really matters whether DeepMind, for instance, has stayed British as such, or whether DeepMind becomes an American British company? Um, not to focus specifically on that example, but examples like that. Does nationality matter in tech?
1: So, my instinct is to say no, but it's my real answer is it's more complicated than that. And it goes back partly to what I said earlier about understanding that policymakers have preferences beyond just pure functioning of the capital markets. And so, when it comes to questions of nationality, I think it's about recognizing that, however much we might want capital markets to be global, unfettered, efficiently allocated, and that means, for example, UK companies having access to global to, to, to US private capital markets, private capital. Um, that there is a there's another side of that ledger, as you said earlier. When it comes to public policymaking, I, I when I when I started at the business department advising, as you said, the business secretary at the time, Pfizer was thinking about were trying to acquire AstraZeneca very noisily, and um, in the press. And I think the issue wasn't so much that Pfizer was was American; it was that the motivation for the deal at the time appeared to be largely to do with tax and the U.S. corporate tax regime. And I think the concern within Whitehall was that's not a very good reason for a transaction, which may or may not compromise you know, future R&D and investment in the UK when it comes to the science base here. So it was a concern about the science base driven by a concern about a motivation of a deal. Yes, there was a non UK dimension, but that wasn't specifically the issue itself. I think what might have changed in the last, um, and we're going back eight years now, is that the national security specific element of that has become more dominant. And so those arguments are being made now, not on the grounds of worried about the UK science base or you know will will uh, a British company like DeepMind continue to get access to capital and talent. It's can we justify the national security side of, of that concern? And there, I think, again, the tech community needs to make sure it's engaged and understood. I think the, the risk for policymakers is that they pay that card too often and too loosely. And when they do that, it, it undermines everyone else's goodwill that they're, that they're being genuine. And when national security becomes a reason to intervene on a deal that you might not like for other reasons, like often in deals, what will happen to the pension scheme? Uh, Melrose, G.K., and in aerospace, it's it's what will happen to the science base, and these are concerns which, in my mind, are legitimate. Policymakers, particularly a business secretary who thinks about industrial strategy, but they're not actually related to national security. And so, I guess where I wash out is, I can see why nationality matters in relation to national security, but that has to be drawn very narrowly. And it's not clear to me that the bill or the framework we have going forward necessarily will limit ministers as narrowly as it could. And it's all it's all then about how they implement it. It's for them to demonstrate that they're treating it as selectively and narrowly as they as they want to. If we start to see it widening, I think that's where we'll end up with the
0: perception that this regime is really about
1: industrial strategy and the UK's economic interests as opposed to its security
0: interests. Yeah, it was put to me when I was in Washington, DC in December. The US has been pushing UK and other European companies, uh, countries to be far more tough on Chinese investment and the national security elements of that and that they were now dealing with the fact that these regimes have come in or in certain countries they're already there but they've been strengthened and the consequence is that it's affecting not only Chinese investors we've seen semiconductor takeovers in Wales or in Germany recently blocked but it is also having to make American investors uh, think twice or think in a slightly more complex way about buying British or other European assets in a way that they wouldn't have had to have done before. Um, And it is a story, an example there of how legislation does sometimes have those unintended consequences. I don't think when the NSIA was being designed that that US acquisitions of UK companies were forefront of mind. Of course, it was considered. It was something else, but clearly that's that's had an unintended uh, impact, at least about how investors are thinking about these things. We have something else going through at the moment with the National Security Bill, which will govern a whole host of different uh, elements, but including how uh, companies engage with Parliament. And again, the geographical scope of that looks extremely wide. Clearly, it's focused on Chinese companies and Russian companies and so on and so forth. That's the original intention, but it is now looking in the parliamentary process much, much wider than that. But let's move on. Um, So Leah, you've done something that very few have done you have launched a VC fund in the UK in the past few years. So I'd love to get your experience of this. Uh, The standard narrative that we have is that doing that sort of thing is pretty hard in the UK and pretty hard in Europe more broadly, much harder than it would be in the entrepreneurial uh, United States. So uh, without wanting to overly fall into stereotypes, can you just talk us through your experience and you know does that resonate is that is there, is there an element of truth in that there is an element of truth in it uh
1: an element of truth that had i fully comprehended and my colleague patrick when we set out on this in sort of late 2018 had we fully comprehended it would we have uh, would we have gone through it all i think that we, we would but it's it's a really tough journey and it's one of the reasons why i think earlier i said that the uk is still quite early in its part of the cycle when it comes to the venture ecosystem is we now have more funds allocating more capital to startups but to start a new fund business from scratch is still really really hard and i think it breaks down and and harder than the u.s which i'll which i'll come back to and i think it breaks down into two or three areas one of them is just around the information asymmetry that you have when you're starting a fund management business there's lots of content and really good stuff out there blogs and resources for startup founders wanting to go and raise vcs you know how to do a pitch deck Normal terms and valuations look like the whole the whole shebang. For someone going to raise a fund, it's there's hardly anything out there, and that's just a um, a fairly sort of that, that's actually a global thing. That's not just about the UK, but there's there's definitely people who will be put off trying to enter VC and start a fund just from the opacity of the sector. And I think that's something that we we spend a lot of time talking to prospective new managers about, just to try and unpack what's involved. And and that often that can really either enable people to go ahead or or it can help them decide that it's not for them. But that shouldn't be a barrier, but it is one. And and and, and you know there were ways to, to overcome that. Hopefully, but a whole part of it is around the infrastructure. And here I think there is a really big difference between UK and the US. In the US, there are platforms like AngelList, which exist to provide essentially the the back office infrastructure both for fund managers and angel investors, and syndicate leads. So you can turn up with as little, maybe as 500K or a million dollars in capital. And they will, um, on a sort of plug and play basis, spin your fund up, get all the admin sorted, help investors come and invest in your fund, help you run your deals. And when we were starting out, they piloted that in Europe and then they pulled the plug uh, because I think it was just seen as a bridge too far. Things were going well in the US. But what it left the UK and the EU without is uh, an obvious go to for the infrastructure just to literally get a fund going because you have to. Otherwise, stitched together, fund, fund formation council, regulatory support—you know—it's a really big lift. And actually, we're now seeing that change with the likes of Voban, which is recently acquired by Carter, the likes of Odin, and others who are building those platforms now for Europe. One thing I'd say about the challenge there—that's European specific—is we're still 27, 28, you know, 30 odd countries here. It's not the same as the U.S., where a lot of the federal level. Rules allow you to kind of have a one stop shop. So if you set up a fund formation platform in the UK, taking it to France, even though we have frameworks like AIFMD at the European level, they don't drill down deep enough into national tax regimes, national company law regimes to actually make that smooth. So there's a, there's, a, there's a piece around harmonization that underpins, I think, infrastructure that can be built in Europe for venture fund formation. But I'll, I'll sort of part that for now because the thing that I think is probably most interesting and gets most specifically the, dif- the difference between the EU, uh, well, EU and the US is around capital and sort of wealth network. And what I mean by that is you could understand what it takes to raise a fund as we ended up doing. You can find the infrastructure on which to build it as we ended up doing, but it doesn't mean you can raise the capital and get people to back you. And that's, it. that's the thing you spend most of your time on as an emerging manager. It's thing that keeps you awake at night for uh, the months and months of, of fundraising. And I think there's a few maybe a few reasons for that and one of them is cultural a lot of the wealth that's been created in the u.s um in sort of in relatively short-term historical wealth it might go back a few generations but actually not longer not much further than that and the entrepreneurial culture and the sort of almost proximity in time to that wealth creation i think just gives people it's not unusual in the u.s to say i'm starting a fund and go around to your network and, and people chip in relatively small amounts but is something you would do you might invest in someone's fund or someone's startup if you had the capital that's still quite an unusual thing in in europe you might go to some wealthy try and network through to some wealthy friends of your parents well, i don't know what the you know, the equivalent is but that culture of just backing your friend or someone you know is, is far less ingrained and i think if you take that upper level to the family office level which is where a lot of european venture fund money comes from is family offices is managing family wealth again Six, seven, eight, ten generations later, they become much more conservative, um, much more um, structured and formal in the way they allocate their capital. And it's much harder for what we call emerging managers to sort of break into that and convince those, man- those allocators to take a bet, which is really what it is, on, on a new fund. And so, and then the final piece is this, the broader LP ecosystems, LPs being investors in funds like mine, so it's so my customers in a way. It's still way underdeveloped compared to... So it's not just that cultural family office piece, but in terms of the number of funder funds we have, you know, the professional vehicles and investment in other funds. Um, college endowments isn't really a thing here. Pension funds don't really allocate capital to venture in Europe in the way they do in the US. The options for how do I fill my 30 million are just, are just far, far reduced. And I actually think that the, the biggest headroom for the European venture ecosystem now is not so much thinking about how do we get more funds or at least, you know, or more startups per se. It's about how do we secure a really deep sustainable LP base from which the venture funds can continually raise and then continue to deploy into startups. And the final point, because I've been uh, talking for a long time, is that I think the thing that concerns me now about the market downturn where we've been in, so 2020, 2022 was possibly the worst year for venture that most most can remember, certainly um since the great financial crisis in and certainly in public tech stocks but it is washing back through the private markets um my concern is not that capital for really good founders dries up in 2023 it's that when venture funds go back to raise from our customers lp in the next year or two that they are they've retrenched heavily out of the market so we have a much lagged effect everyone thought that maybe last year and this year would be the, the bottom of the trough there's a potential i think structurally that that it Delayed a bit because LPs ultimately are the ones who provide all the capital for the European ecosystem. So, and we, and we can talk more about that. But again, I think the LP base in the US is far more durable, far more entrenched. So it can weather uh, the storm that we're having at the moment a bit more, um, with a bit more
0: resilience. That's fascinating. There's a lot in there, Leo. So you've got the, sort of the cultural elements, you have the commercial, the structural, the financial bunch of issues. And you started with a, more of a policy. Uh, focus, and I think we're going back into the age-old conversations about completing the European single market. So, people listening in, in Brussels will no doubt uh, be delighted. But to, to, to focus on that point specifically, and we'll go back to some of the cultural elements in a second. On the policy side, what we've heard post-Brexit is that we have greater flexibility. The UK could be more nimble. That the UK can carve a more deregulatory, more pro-business environment outside of the EU. You did say, though, that the UK is sort of resting on its laurels. And I think that's what you said. Or you said something along the lines about coasting. By the way, it wasn't particularly <laughs> positive. Um, so, I mean, do you think the UK either yeah, so sort of pre-post-Brexit, sort of almost irrelevant in some sense, but are we? how do we compare ultimately? Because you've mentioned a few other markets there and yeah, are we seeing any advantages of that i mean we've had a big debate around r&d tax credits recently which sort of seems to run counter to perhaps what we've been talking about here and also the implication of what you said that was unspoken there but let's say the eu gets its act together and has a single market in in venture so you can sort of one stop shop set up in an ireland and you can set up pretty easily elsewhere afterwards we're not going to be part of that we're outside so i suppose my question is <sighs> Post-Brexit, are we looking good in the UK to keep a leading role in VC and startup within Europe? Or are there difficulties that you can see outside of the EU, and particularly certain policy choices we're making, are going to make it more difficult? So I'm optimistic overall, because I think the the UK's
1: tech startup innovation base is incredibly strong. So, and I think that will persist, and I think it will persist, and, and the UK will... Will continue to succeed outside of the EU, but I'd kind of break it down onto these sides. So, the things that the going back to my point about capital and talent, they are essentially borderless concepts. And so, the bigger and deeper the pool of each, the better. So, when it comes to the mobility of high quality talent across a continent or across continents, and the ability of say European company to attract global capital, then essentially friction and borders cut against that in, in, in a fairly simplistic way. And you made the point about the European single market. So there is undoubtedly, and I don't think even, um, I don't think anyone would argue against the idea that being part of a bigger, less, with less friction pool of both capital and talent will be a good thing overall at the margin. But we're not there. We're not there politically. And I think it's sort of, we, we've, we've broadly had the debate about, about whether that was a good idea or not. But I think it flips to then on the other side, if the UK is out of Europe, has some choices to make about what it wants to do, where does it go? And one of the opportunities that I see that I don't think yet is being taken is on what I call that kind of vertical specific regulatory reform piece. So for example, the UK is modernizing its approach to gene modification and genetic engineering regulation, specifically in mind with the promotion of innovation in cellular agriculture, whether that's crops in animals. And that is a very touchy area of EU-derived law in the 90s, which I think politically and from a literal kind of EU perspective has been too difficult for the UK to touch while inside the EU. And now it's looking at it. And I see that as a very clear and direct um, result of of both the ability to do it post-Brexit and the willingness to see that as an area of pro-innovation reg reform. And so there are these areas. What I think we've drifted into more recently is this obsession about in a verticom is tearing up the European rulebook, and you remember that. You may remember that great uh, video with the shredder uh, and all these documents, all these EU laws going through it. And that for me is complete farce. It's a complete waste of time because having sat through millions of red tape challenges both in my time at the CBI and the business department, it's it's a um, it's a myth to think that somehow we're going to turn over something that's just been holding us all back. And, and and while we continue to obsess about quote unquote the whole European rulebook and tearing it up we're not thinking deeply and carefully about those areas where we can use newfound freedoms to actually unlock innovation. So, so that's where I think we, we need more of the genetic tech-esque stuff. And we need less of this sort of signalling around, around the rule rulebook. It's, it's, it, for me, it's a complete waste of time, although I do see politically why there's an incentive to talk about that. Um, you mentioned the R&D point, which is a good one, because that's actually not an area where the UK has really had to take its lead from, from the EU. In the past and has had quite a supportive and generous, generous regime and for those listeners that might not have followed this in the autumn statement in towards the end of last year the government announced that it was essentially reducing the generosity of the scheme for small businesses to um it claims sort of try and tackle fraud and and, and the problem as a uh as a vc that i see there is my portfolio it, it's, it's equivalent to sucking cash out of a portfolio company within the coming fiscal year so what it's left is a hole in the cash flow of a huge number of Euro- of uh, uk r d intensive startups this sort of fiscal year and that's very hard in a challenging fundraising environment to just overcome uh, it was done without consultation and it was done without without warning and that has created a big backlash in the tech community and i think right so i think the government's just got this one wrong um, it was a very a uh, big autumn statement that was correcting a lot of damage done by the previous administration, so there's an understandable oversight in some respects, but it now needs to step back and think about how to fix that so that it doesn't have you know the pretty materially damaging effect on on the actual cash in in uk startups sort of next year. but broadly speaking, that is an area of you know a specific area of challenge, but broadly speaking, you know, this government has continued what I think has been actually consistent support decades in the UK of entrepreneurship, innovation, business growth, schemes like EIS, SEIS on the tax side, a huge amount of public funding for innovation, both uh, deep science, and then as we were arguing back in 2014 and 15 onwards for what's now Innovate UK on the commercialization side. You know, there's a huge amount of capital there. We can talk about how it's allocated. So you know, I think the UK has a huge number of strengths. I think we need to get away from the argument about setting out the rule book, focus on that vertical reform where newfound freedoms
0: actually unlock Potential. Um, but overall, I'm an optimist. Okay. Well, there's there's a final point I'd like to sort of pick up on from what, what you said there. So you, you talk quite a lot about the cultural elements in the states. And I you were talking more about how people share or invest their wealth with other people within their networks and their community. One thing we didn't talk about there was the cultural and the, cult, the cultural elements related to the startups themselves and how they think about developing their companies, developing their user growth, their product, and so on and so forth. And the reason I come on to this is slightly to that R&D tax credit point because you do sometimes, and it's particularly the case when you go to the West Coast, when you go to the West Coast, it, the, the, you speak to people both in VCs but also in, in startups and, and you know, high-growth companies they see government as an obstacle and they see very few positives on it. I remember a presentation we gave in March and we talked through some of the things we were discussing earlier, things like the national security screening measures in the UK and elsewhere, interventions to stop, say, Facebook buying Giphy, and the horror on people's faces that governments were intervening this way was, just, was, was remarkable uh, as someone who's quite deep in this on a day-to-day basis. So, I'd be interested, just as our final point here, just to understand, is that a similar point here? Sometimes there's issues like the R&D tax credit where, as you, you would argue, there is quite a strong point to be made. But sometimes there's other issues perhaps where people are misreading why the government is acting and so on and so forth. Is that culture the same in the UK as the US? Do people just essentially in startups see, right, I need my product, I need my growth, and... I don't want to think about regulation because you basically work on, I think I look at quoting a website here UK startups with public policy exposure. So, do they get that they have public policy exposure? And if they get it, do they prioritize it? Yeah, it's, it's a good question.
1: And there's a lot there. And I'm sort of smiling because I recognize very well that description of the, the sort of slightly militant founder that really just doesn't think government has any sort of a role or a say in what it's doing and, and should get out of the way. And I, th- I think broadly, we're moving away from that of that kind of culture in in the us and and in in europe and actually the whole what's called american dynamism movement that's led by uh the fund a16z is almost premised around startups tackling big public problems whether that's in 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 even in the defense space or or elsewhere in civil the civil space and i think a recognition by the venture community that sort of government's there and there's there's opportunities to coexist so even in the us which Has has been exactly as you say. I think it's beginning to shift in Europe. I actually think we have a quite a different regulatory culture and quite a different tech ecosystem. So we invest in companies that have public policy exposure, as you say, and then we help them as a fund navigate and understand that, you know, leveraging our expertise in that domain. And we're the only fund in Europe that does that. But we think that if you simply empirically, if you look at the the companies in the UK that have got the unicorn state, heavily heavily weighted towards what we call regulated markets, whether that's the traditional old moving slower regulated markets like energy and healthcare and fintech or new markets where innovation is uh, uh innovation is almost creating a market crypto or as i say, cultivated meat or the carbon offsetting market where policy hasn't taken shape but is needing to in response to innovation and i just think generally the reason that we seem to be better at building those kind of companies in europe is partly to do with that regulatory culture and the uh, the, the mutual understanding that there's a role for either side both tech and policymakers to play in fostering that whereas in the US it's been very much you're over there government we're over here we'll get on with it and maybe to a small degree that explains some of the lean towards maybe more consumer focused products or enterprise software where government just isn't in the room and in Europe we seem to be up for taking on those thornier trickier deeper more complex markets and that's what we find interesting and we think some of biggest most important companies in the next few decades are going to be built in those markets and they're going to be built in those markets at least with an understanding and a bit of appreciation about what policymakers are doing because i think that that narrative articulated in the u.s also misses half of the ledger which is policy can and regulation can constrain things to a degree but it can also be a massive opportunity and a massive block for companies that that um, if you're in sort of EV charging or self-driving cars or a lot of the ai space it's absolutely critical that you have government brought in to what you're doing. And if you can get government bought in, that can be huge, a huge part of your defensibility and, 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 and can competitive sort of performance over time. So I think we, we have a much more nuanced view of policy than, than maybe has gone in the past. We see it as opportunity as well as risk. And we think that Europe is a great place and will continue to be
0: a great place to build these kind of companies. Great. Well, thanks, Leo. Uh, that's been a fascinating insight, firstly, just to explore what was behind the report that you contributed to with Atomico, but also to get some of those, particularly the cultural bits that you brought out um, within the VC startup and wider business community, both in the UK and the US. Really fascinating to hear. Uh, I do encourage anyone who's listening on the line to look up the um, State of European Tech report, which uh, Atomico published and which Form Ventures, Leo and his colleagues uh, contributed to. Um, And as always, If you, your business or your investment are exposed to the issues that we've been talking today, so around VC, uh, the climate for VCs and startups, most obviously in the UK, but also we we ventured onto the rest of Europe as well, please don't hesitate to get in touch. You can find our details on the GC website at www.global-council.com or via the link in the podcast notes. Thanks very much, Leo. And uh, thanks very much for everyone for joining. Bye-bye we